This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 280 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Carmen Maria Machado, who you may remember from our panel on the best American science fiction and fantasy 2015 back in episode 177, and to our panel on Ghostbusters 2016 back in episode 213. She holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is currently the artist-in-residence at the University of Pennsylvania. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, Year's Best Weird Fiction, and Best Women's Erotica. Ants will be speaking with her today about her debut book, a short story collection called Her Body and Other Parties. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper mattresses are made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, their breathable design helps keep you cool and comfortable all night. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for over a year, and let me tell you it's the perfect mattress for curling up with a book like Her Body and Other Parties. In fact, it's so comfortable it'll make you want to write a book called My Body and Other Parties. So just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. So remember the address is casper.com slash galaxy, and you should also use the promo code GALAXY, which will get you $50 off any mattress, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Carmen Maria Machado. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so one topic that's come up a bunch of times on this show is what kind of experiences people have writing fantasy and science fiction in college and MFA programs and stuff like that. Could you talk mm-hmm. about what your experience mm-hmm. with that was like? Well, in college, I wasn't really writing non-realism. I feel like I was mostly writing realism in college and undergrad. But when I got to my MFA program, um, I mean, I was writing, like I started writing realism and then I kind of transitioned into like, fantasy and horror and like more experimental stuff. Um, and I consider myself pretty lucky in that, like all my classmates were really behind it. Like every so often somebody like wouldn't really get it, but for the most part, everybody was really supportive and amazing and was just like, this is weird as hell. Like keep going. Um, (laughs) which felt really good. Um, so yeah, so I really, really, I really, really liked it. Um, and nobody really like stopped me or got in my way. Like they were just like, this is great. Like keep going. Um, yeah. And you were at Iowa, right? I was at Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, was anyone else there writing fantasy and science fiction? Oh yeah. I'd say like at least half my classmates submitted non-realism um, in some form or another throughout the time I was there. I mean, there was one, Um, I was there with EJ Fisher, who's like a science fiction writer who like identifies as a science fiction writer. Um, but a lot of my classmates were writing horror, writing 
sort of liminal fantasy, like magical realism, like science fiction, all kinds of stuff. Um, so yeah, no, everybody was, I think most people were sort of playing around and experimenting. Cause my experience seems to be that maybe programs are more open to the magical realism, liminal fantasy kind of stuff, you know, like sort of like Kelly Link or Karen Russell or sure. things like that. Then they would be at a like Game of Thrones or Dune or something like that. It, was that your experience as well? I mean, I think I didn't, I don't think there was a ton of like epic or secondary world fantasy, not because it was discouraged, just because I think that's not what folks were really writing. Um, I feel like maybe there were a couple, but I couldn't, I mean, I don't really remember much about it. I mean, it was more, more about like what people were actually bringing in. Um, but there was definitely science fiction. There was definitely like liminal and sort of portal style fantasy of various kinds, um, and horror. Well, yeah, and I know that you also, you went to the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop, and I was wondering if you could just contrast mm -hmm. Iowa and Clarion a little bit. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're so different in terms of, like, I, I mean, Clarion is not an MFA program. Like, Clarion is a six-week, like, you know, insane, exhausting boot camp. It's, like, a totally different process. Like, the MFA program is, like, you know, more, more moderate, more, uh, moderate in the sense that it's just sort of happening over the course of several years. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know really how to compare them. Like the workshops, workshop style is really different. Um, you know, the genre places tend to use, um, I forget the name of it, but like the system where everybody goes around in a circle and says their piece and then it's silent and then moves on to the next person. Oh yeah. The Milford. Yeah. Which actually I do not like that workshop system. Um, but that is the way that like it's been, it was on a clarion. It was done that way when I went to like Sycamore Hill, like that's just, I think the sort of the tradition, whereas in an MF, my MFA program, like it was more of a style of, um, you know, people, uh, uh, like just sort of talking, you know, um, and kind of responding to each other in real time, which is just for me, I just prefer that system. Um, so it's sort of hard to compare Clarion and Iowa because they're just like, they're just like inherently really different in terms of like what you're sort of getting out of them. Um, you know, what I got out of Iowa was like two years of funded time to like work on my own shit, which was like amazing and really wonderful. When I got out of Clarion was like this really like, you know, sort of bombastic, like high intensity, like octane fueled, like genre extravaganza where I barely slept. And I was like writing a lot of stuff, some of which was really terrible and some of which was like pretty good um, and workshopping nonstop and barely sleeping. So I feel like it's just like a, it was just like a really different, they're just like really different programs. Yeah. So who, who were your clarion instructors? It was Ted Chang was one of them, right? It was Ted Chang. Um, uh, Walter John Williams, Jeffrey Ford, uh, 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 Delia Sherman, and then our 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 duo was um, Holly Black and Cassie Clare. Yeah, wow, that's really cool. So, does any uh, any advice that you got stick out in your mind, or any uh, anything that any conversations that happened, or anything like that? I mean, I feel like I feel like the nice thing about Clarion was how like every instructor brought like a really different sensibility to the classroom um, and sort of had different focuses. Like some people were more like plot focused and other people were more focused on like sort of the energy of a story or like, you know, um, it's funny. We like, we had written down all the advice and Sam, uh, Sam J. Miller, who was in my class at some point had like published like a post somewhere that like kind of went semi-viral. It was like all the advice we had received over six weeks. Um, some of which was like kind of obvious and some of which was like, I don't know, like, 
Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, I don't know, like Ted Chang gave us this like incredible lecture about time travel and like the way that time travel can function in a story, like either as like a very technical, um, like he sort of gave us a mini lecture on like how time travel could like theoretically work. And he's like, you know, you can write a story that like has this as like its basis, or you can use it as a sort of more like quote unquote, like literary device where it's less about the sort of the technicality of, of the genre and more about like using it as a device. So like that was really awesome. So yes, yeah, so we, we feel like we were getting like lots of really different, interesting sort of areas of focus from our other writer, from like other writers and like, like Holly Black and Cassie Clare were really into like plot and structure and outlining. And so they kind of gave us this way of like thinking about like novel writing. Like I remember Holly gave us this like really great piece of advice about like, making a menu for yourself of like things that could theoretically happen in your like story or in your novel. And then when you're feeling stuck in your plot, like going to the menu and being like, Oh, I, this would be a good time to like do this thing and like pluck it off the menu and like p- try putting it in. Um, and that was really helpful to me because like, I'm a person who struggles with plot all the time. So I was like, that's amazing. That's such good advice. Um, so yes, yeah, so everybody kind of had their own like sensibility based on their work and their genre. Um, but it was really neat. I think the neatest part of that was like getting such a wide range of instructors. Yeah. Did, uh, did Ted Chang say anything about story of your life when he was talking about time travel? Um, I don't remember. I mean, in my memory, the lecture that he gave is actually probably more relevant to, um, the merchant and the alchemist gate, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. which is a story, which is a story that I teach. Cause it, cause that story, like, goes at the very technical sort of elements of time travel. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't remember exactly if he mentioned any of the stories in particular, but, like, when I later read that story, I was like, oh, that's, like, that lecture he gave up. You know, like, I I, real, I recognized, like, the mechanics sort of at work, um, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And then do you do, you do these sort of artist colony things as well? I do. I do. I love residencies. I, I get a lot of work done because I, I like to have sort of lots of time at my disposal. Um, so it just really works for me to like go somewhere for four weeks and just like have nothing to do besides write. So did you write your story, the resident at a residency? <laughs> I started it at a resident. I started it. Rather, I, rather, I started it before I went to a residency, which is like pretty amazing um, because I didn't have a sense of like what was really, what really happened at residencies, but I was like, I need like an isolated natural place um, and it, I was like, I want her to be an artist. So like, that actually is like a perfect sort of setup. So I sort of had begun the story like that. And then the story, there were a lot of details in the stories that if you've been to a residency, you'll be like, oh, that's very real. And those I, ra- I wrote like after, cause that, that story took me like three years to write. So in between starting it, I went and finishing it, I went to like multiple residencies. And so I had like a better sense of like even better details to include. So is that story like because because what happens in the story is it sort of starts out as a fairly regular kind of residency situation and then it becomes more and more surreal and uh, sort of grotesque and hallucinogenic and and very gothic. And I was Mm -hmm. just wondering if that mood is that mood kind of are you importing that mood into the residency experience or when you're getting your work critiqued or whatever, do you kind of feel some of that sort of sense of dread or menace hanging over the uh, situation? To begin with? Well, no one's doing critiques at residencies. Um, you just are writing. I mean, every so often people will 
like do an event like they'll like have a little reading that's like totally voluntary and people will like read from their work or if you're like a visual artist they'll like take you in and like let you look at what they've been working on but it's not critique based at all like they're just sort of like here's what i'm doing and you're like cool and that's sort of the end of that conversation um so yeah so but i definitely feel like that sense that sort of gothic sensibility i mean because you're like in this very isolated place you're with a lot of other artists who sort of are usually more or less pretty high strung I mean, I was at a residency last year during the election and it was like, you know, like 12, 15 people just having like a slow collective nervous breakdown over the course of like a month and a half. Um, so there is this sort of weird like group energy, you know, and you're talking at dinner and like conversations can get weird and like you're all sort of strangers, but also there's this like forced sense of intimacy because like you've been together like nonstop for, you know, however many weeks. Um, so the mood is very strange, um, even though I love it. Like I really enjoy residencies, but yeah, the mood is definitely odd. And also when you're alone with yourself, you know, it's, it's weird, right? It gets weird if you're like alone with yourself at a certain period of time. So I feel like, um, it just sort of worked out in that the mood was like perfectly suited. Like that setting was like perfectly suited for the mood I wanted to strike in that story. Yeah. I mean, so were those, those Gothic elements or the sort of surreal elements, were those were you um, consciously drawing from any particular source or was that just all kind of coming out of your imagination? Oh, I mean, it was coming from a few places. I mean, that story is pretty heavily influenced by um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And also um, this writer that I really adore, Bennett Sims, uh, who has a book called White Dialogues, a new collection called White Dialogues. He's a friend and is a tremendous writer. And he has this really beautiful story, beautiful, terrifying story called House Sitting that's about a guy who like, goes to a cabin in the woods. And it's different in, in many ways, but I think it's sort of drawing from this sort of inspiration, like films like Roman Polanski's The Tenant, right? These sort of like really eerie sort of films about isolation. Um, and so, yeah, so I feel like I sort of am drawing from any, all those narratives where it's like, one must go to a place uh, and be alone with oneself and like oneself slowly sort of spiraling away from reality. Um, and I very much enjoy that genre just as a, to watch as well. So I don't know. It like worked out pretty well. Hmm. Well, right. And in the um, story, like one of the characters talks about the sort of artists who cloister themselves away from the rest of the world as being undesirable Um is that sort of, do you share that view the of that you don't want to be around those sort of artists who are cut off from everyone else? Oh, I'm like trying to remember that sentiment in the book. Um, I, I could read you the paragraph. The par yeah, could you? Sorry. <laughs> like, I don't even remember what I wrote. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the narrator says, I needed to be home with my wife in our home and civilization and away from other artists, at least the sort of artists who cloister themselves away from the rest of the world, dying profession, dead hotels. I had been foolish. Oh, yeah. I mean, not, I don't actually think that. Like, I think it's perfectly fine to, like, go isolate yourself and, like, make art. Like, I think that's actually admirable and wonderful. Um, but I could see how if you were having the feelings and the experiences that she was having, that you would be like, I need to get back to civilization. I mean, there is a, there is also like, after you've been in a residency for a certain period of time, there is a sense of like, I would like to return to some sense of normalcy in terms of like my routine and my life and my relationships. And, you know, like it's just, it's, you, you miss all the things that, um, you miss all the things that sort of make your life, your life. 
Um, and so I think that it was more like sort of calling on that sense of like, this is too much. I need to get back. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I was struck too by that line or, you know, the, the dying profession. Do you think of writing as a, any way a dying profession? No, no, she, she does. I don't. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So that's good. It's always good to be better <laughs> in a non-dying profession, I find. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but I thought it was interesting, though, because a lot of this, a lot of the stories in this book have a little bit of um, influence of sort of the millennial experience and the kind of, you know, running down of, you know, jobs that are that pay well and college degrees that get you a good job and stuff like that. Um, I guess, could you just talk a little bit about, do, do you see, do, do you see what I'm talking about, about the, the experience of the millennial, um, or the, the influence of the millennial experience on the stories? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I am a millennial, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I mean, I feel like, like everybody, you know, as an artist, I'm responding to the sense of just my own sense of the world. Right. So like, I was one of those people who like, I had these dreams of being an artist. I was sort of talked into by a parent getting a certain degree, which is going to be a little more fruitful in terms of um, income. Then I graduated from college with like, and then in college I like rejected that major and went to another major that was like even more useless. And then hmm. the recession hit and I've never even worked in my field at all. Um, you know, <laughs> um, Because everything really shifted and like the world really changed kind of dramatically around us. And I feel like, any millennial will either tell you or will sort of know, even if they don't admit it, like that sense of sort of being unmoored and feeling like very mistrustful of what people tell you should and should not be doing. I think it comes from the fact that like, you know, adult, and so like, it's like they tell us how to do things. The world shifted around us so dramatically and now everyone's just yelling at us for things that were like completely outside of our control. Um, and I think that that is a general sentiment like shared by millennials. Um, and you know, and I also wanted to draw on, like, the, you know, also the, the fact that we are sort of the last generation that, like, sort of remembers time before technology, that te current technology was, like, more ubiquitous. So there's this weird sort of, like, liminal, like, boundary between, like, you know, the sort of the technical and um, non-technical sort of elements of our, our lives um, in terms of, like, computers and smartphones and whatnot. Um and so I feel like there's just this, like, we, we are just like, this very, like, weird sort of liminal generation that is, like, really trying to grapple with a lot of chaos while also being told that we are garbage at every turn. <laughs> um, and I and I really find that very interesting. And, I mean, I identify with it, obviously, as, like, a member of that, of that group. Um, yeah, and also this collection, I mean, draws on, like, for example, like, the scary stories to tell in the dark books which were like very like for like formative for like my generation um you know it's just i mean this book is i'm a millennial so this book is drawn from me and so it, it makes sense that that influence would be sort of felt throughout yeah i mean if you could go back in time would you tell yourself not to go to college or like how would you what advice would you give i mean i think if i went back in time i would say like hey like maybe think about getting um <laughs> like a different degree uh one that maybe could be applied in many ways, but also just like, cause you know, I just, I mean, I literally graduated, like I graduated in 2008, like the recession happened and I was just like, well, 
everything I thought I knew is not the case anymore. And like, I'm going to be growing up with this sense of like sort of economic instability and like, you know, I, like just, I wish I had known that was just going to be the case. Cause like, I really had no sense of that, but like who, I mean, no one could have. Right. So I probably would have gotten a degree with like maybe some more broader practical application stuff that would have actually mattered because like everyone I knew like had to like people I knew who had quote unquote useful degrees, like also struggled to find work. Um, so, so yeah. So I just sort of, I mean, I really like everything changed for me when I went to grad school because it kind of reset my professional experience and I could just like work from this sort of new place. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I do it any differently because obviously everything has worked out pretty well in terms of my writing career. Um, but I mean, the reason I went to grad school is because I was like, I was living in California, I had a job I hated. I spent two years trying to find other jobs and never even got an interview anywhere. I mean, it was like really bad. Um, and I was miserable and I was like, I need to get out of here. I don't want to be here anymore, but I also can't just like quit my job because like then I won't have any money and I'll, I don't know what I'll do. And then I was like, if I apply to grad, like a funded grad program, I can just like get, I guess like get, get a jail free car. Like I can just go, um, and not have to worry about a job and like go do that. And so then I decided to apply for MFA programs. So, I mean, it ended up working out really well, but like I literally applied to grad school because I was like, the world is fucked and I don't know what to do about anything. And so I might as well just go do this because like, what else am I going to do with my life? Um, so yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like literature has fully come to terms with this changed world you're describing? Cause I feel sometimes like if you read books, they're almost like realistic novels. It's almost like a fantasy world where people own Like people own houses and stuff like that. I'm like, that's, I that's, I don't know. That's not my experience, you know? I mean, all, all, all of fiction is its own fantasy, but, um, I mean, no, there definitely is fiction that, like, grapples, I think, with, like, the changed world we live in, um, especially because now, I mean, that happened about 10 years ago, right? So we've had, like, a decade to, like, reconcile, like, have art reconcile with that, um, but certainly there are, like, situations, like, house ownership that I find just totally baffling. I'm like, oh, that's nice. You know, like, I remember one time with my aunt who has like a government job was like, what, what are you doing for retirement? And I was like, retirement. <laughs> she was like, we have a retirement account. And I was like, Nope. What? It was, she was like, well, what do you, where do you put your extra money? And I was like, what extra money? <laughs> like my savings? Like what? Like I don't have savings. I don't have, like I'm barely scraping by. Like I have student loans. I'm still paying off. Um, you know, like I don't, that just is not the world that I have grown up in. Like our lives are just so different. Um, you know, what are we supposed to, I mean, yeah. So we're just trying to, I think we're just trying to figure it out. I think it would be easier to figure out if everyone wasn't telling us we were pieces of garbage all the time. I think that would be a little easier, but you know, what do you do about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's just funny. In the, in the book, you, you, what's, what's the line you say? Uh, at first everyone blamed the fashion industry, then the millennials and finally the water. It's just like, yeah. why not blame the millennials that it always, you know, it happens every time. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about some of these, a lot of these stories deal with, uh, with men and women and the way that they relate to each other and the way that women relate to women and and so on. But, um, I I thought the story eight bites was really interesting because it's sort of like this weight loss horror story. And, Mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe, maybe could you just talk about the premise of that story? Sure. So the premise of eight bites is that a woman, um, 
there's a woman who she like lives up in sort of Cape Cod and she's pretty estranged from her daughter, her adult daughter and all of her sisters and her are somewhat overweight. And then her sisters all get weight loss surgery and she decides to also get weight loss surgery. And so as she loses the weight, she begins to hear things in her house and at some point realizes that the the fat that she's losing with the body of hers that is leaving is like acclimating somewhere else and has become sort of its own creature. Um, and so the sort of the latter half of the story is like her sort of very uh, fraught relationship with this like thing that used to be sort of her, but is not really anymore. Do you remember how you came up with that idea? You know, I I actually had a written, written that story for an anthology prompt, and I ended up withdrawing it from the anthology because the edits they wanted me to make, I did not like. Um, so I ended up just taking, just not submitting it. But my initial concept was that it was sort of a retelling of The Little Mermaid, which you would not know unless you sort of knew that, and then you looked at the story again. Like, there are certain beats uh, but but it's pretty far removed from that story, so I don't really consider it even a retelling. It's just sort of like the seed of that story. Um, and I had sort of had this idea about I wanted to write about an older woman. Like most of my characters are fairly young, and I I had the idea of I wanted to write about somebody who's older than I was, and I like the idea of writing a story about like a woman with an adult daughter. And I was really interested in in trying to tackle the concept of like weight loss and weight loss surgery, which is something that I think about and also that I have experience with in my own family. And so I kind of, you know, I just, it was like, like so many stories where like, I wanted to sort of grapple with this idea uh, using fiction. Like I was like, I feel like I have so many thoughts and like the way that I need to kind of go at it is fiction. So, so I, um, yeah, like just sort of got this idea. I was like, what if she's haunted by her own body? And then it sort of took shape and that eventually, I mean, it became this, um, this, this thing, this creature, but I wanted it to be like, not scary exactly, but more like tender and strange. Um, so yeah. And I like wanted to set it on Kate. Like I had all these sort of ideas about setting something in like a tourist town in the off season. Like that was another idea that I'd had. So I, I feel like I sort of pulled together a bunch of things and, and then I was really pleased with the results. Like I really love that story. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like Frankenstein a little bit in the sense that there's sort of something of yourself that you've rejected and now it's coming back to haunt you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was just I was curious if you've ever um, read or heard of the George R. R. Martin story, The Monkey Treatment. That's the other way. No. Horror, horror story that I can think of. No, I have to. The Monkey Treatment. That sounds great. No, I will, I'll totally check that out. Yeah, so it's about this guy goes to a shop and they sell him, you know, he, he he wants to lose weight and they sell him this monkey that sits on your shoulder. And every time you try to eat something, the monkey kind of like punches you in the face and grabs the food out of your hand and eats it itself. And <laughs> as, you lose, as you lose weight, the monkey starts getting bigger and bigger until like you're just this skinny person. You have this gigantic gorilla sized thing on your, you know, hulking thing on your shoulder. I think that nobody else can see except you, if I remember correctly. Uh, okay. Oh God, that sounds that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, because a lot of these stories, though, they deal with women's bodies like disappearing and things like that. Um, there's mm -hmm. actually oh, Bennett Sims actually you mentioned earlier had kind of an interesting blurb on the book, um, saying 
uh, that the stories are about how women can survive in worlds that want them to disappear, whether into marriage, motherhood, death, or literally prom dresses. Yeah. Could you talk about that idea a little bit of, of the world wants women to disappear? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it's funny. Like I get asked this question a lot, but like, it doesn't seem to me as if this is like that revolutionary or strange of an idea, but like, you know, especially like, you know, thinking about like the election, like, like there's nothing clearer to me in this world than the fact that like we, and by we, I mean like culture, like society hate, hate women. We hate women. We hate women so much that we can't even conceive we couldn't even sort of have a national imagination that could imagine Hillary Clinton being president. Um, and I think about that not just in terms of Trump, which is its own sort of problem, but also like the sort of the progressive response to Hillary Clinton, especially with like progressive men, leftist men. And I, and so it's not shocking to me that Hillary didn't win because it, it's, it, it makes total sense to me, you know, because we just, we hate women so much. And I think that, um, we want women to disappear. We want women to not, you know, be taking up any kind of space, either literal space or emotional space or mental space. Um, and every so often we sort of burst forth. So like right now there's this like current, like really intense, violent conversation happening about like sexual assault and sexual violence and like Harvey Weinstein and all this stuff. And like every so often in the cycle, like this will happen. Women will like cry out as like one and then it sort of recedes into itself and then it just starts. And then like the silence continues and then it like bursts forth. I mean, it's like this just horrible cycle. And so, yeah, so I feel like we are not, again, we meaning society, like do not find it suitable for like women to like be present in any significant way. Um, we're comfortable with them not. And so, yeah, so like it doesn't, I mean, like it's weird, like it likes so many sort of critics, like, like reviews of the book and blurbs, like, Sometimes, you know, other readers see things that you don't necessarily see in your own work. So, like, when Bennett gave me that blurb, I was like, wow, like, I hadn't even really considered that. But that's true. That is, like, every story is like that. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that was just, like, a thing that's on my mind as an artist. And so, of course, it was, like, reflected in this book, you know. Um, it is reflected in my other work as well. So, so yeah, so it just it makes sense because it's just, like, it's on my mind, you know. And so when you say that we hate women, you mean women as well? Do women also hate women and or the idea of being a woman or something like that? I think women have been socialized to hate women. I mean, I don't think women naturally would, but I think that, like, we also are sort of trained. Like, if, for example, like, the obsession with weight loss, the obsession with, like, food policing and body policing and thinking of food as this shame, um, that whole conversation, like, we, we, women, have been sort of taught to do that. Um, so yeah. So I think that women, yeah, I think women also hate women. I mean, I think it's like really, it's bad. It's really bad. It's a really bad situation. Um, I don't know what to do about it, but it really bothers me. Well, I mean, like maybe one thing to do about it is to have, like if every um, movie had a female president in it that you ever saw growing up, and then there was like maybe one with a male president or something. I mean, do you think that that might, make it more imaginable for people? Well, I mean, not that specific thing by itself, but sure. Like, I feel like we just do not let, um, it's like, we just don't want the, yeah, like in art, like we just don't want Lala when our art occupy that. I mean, I just was, um, talking to somebody about, uh, 
uh, like auto fiction and like thinking about like the, uh, the, 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 this, the guy who wrote my struggle, whose name I cannot, Carl Ove, uh, Karsgaard. Um, and you know, it's like this multi, this multi book series, just this like very like meticulous recounting of his life. And it's like, I can't even imagine a woman writing a book like that. Not because I don't think a woman could write a book like that, but because we would never permit a woman to engage in that sort of like self-love and self-obsession. Women are punished for doing that. You know, we call them divas. We're like, oh, she's so self-centered. Like we don't allow women the the range of sort of artistic expression that we permit men. Um, Because we hate them. We don't want them to take up any space. So yeah. So I think if like, art was reflecting more of that space taking, then yes, I think there would be like a kind of trickle down effect. But unfortunately they sort of follow each other. It's like culture follows art and art follows culture. So like, it's like, if we can't imagine it, then like, and the more the, the artists who are the most sort of prominent and the most well-known are men and like, they can't imagine it. And so like, it doesn't show up in their art and then we don't see it. And then we can't imagine it another way. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's, it's like, again, it's like a cycle. Um Yeah. I mean, are you tr- are you trying to fight back against that in this book? You think by writing, uh, writing autobiographical stuff into it, or yeah, and also, I mean, it's not it's not autofiction. You know, it's different. But I mean, I, I wanted a story where, I mean, except for the Law and Order story, where you know half of it is is sort of about uh, Stabler. All my characters are women. Some stories have no men at all, or have only a couple. Um, and actually I'd had an editor of one of my stories, not, not my editor at Grey Wolf, but an editor, like a magazine editor at some point kind of get shirty with me about the fact that like, I didn't have any male characters in one of my stories. And I was like, so what, who cares? You know? Um, and like, I just don't, it's like, I don't give a shit about like men's stories. Not because, I mean, I, 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 there are men in my life that I love and adore and I love, there are male artists that I love and adore, but also I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't need to add another male character to the pile. You know, like, that's not what we need. Like, we need women. We need queer women. Like, that's that's what I want to see. Um, and so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I was also kind of struck by this line. You, uh, one of the characters says, it is my right to reside in my own mind. It is my right to be unsociable. And it is my right to be unpleasant to be around. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, in that story, so that's, again, the, re- the story of the resident. And, like, that character is, like, super weird. She's, like, very sort of in her own mind, she's just like a very, you know, it's clear, like looking at the way the other people interact with her, that she's like, so strange. Right. Um, and the others get weird about it. And she's like, no, it's my right to, to, to be a weird, unlike basically it's my right to be an unlikable character is what she's saying. Um, or an unlikable person. Uh, and I, I, again, like I wanted, it's like, I'm okay with like, I wanted her to be a little unpleasant and a little weird because like, why not? Men get to be unpleasant and weird all the time. Um, and I, I really just wanted to give her that space and give her that permission. Um, and then it was, I think it was more subtle throughout. And then at some point I was like, I should just like have her say that <laughs> like out loud. Um, and I did. So, I mean, is that just something for characters or in your, like just out in the street and stuff? Do you think that there's virtues to just having the attitude that I can be unpleasant to be around if I want to want to be? Yeah, I and mean, I don't mean like going out and like kicking people, like, kicking children over in the street, you know, but like, you know, like for example, um, you know, some days when I'm out sort of doing business, you know, I've got like things I got to do. I'm like kind of just like zoning out. I'm like in my own head. I'm thinking, I'm listening to a podcast. Like, 
and this is true of like street harassment. This is like, you know, it's like street harassment is, a, is an example of this. So like, I'm not even allowed to just walk down the street in my own mind because some, some person, a man has to like, be like, Hey, like, I'm going to like say this thing to you now. And it's not even a practical thing. If like, I'm not actually trying to like take you home on a date, it's like, I want to just like let you know that like you are occupying the, the like, I'm going to like, that you're not allowed to occupy the space just on your own. Like I have to like impose myself. Um, and that's a really, and then it's like my sort of the, the, my reverie, like my private time myself, like that whole process has like been sort of punctured and ruined. Um, and this sort of happens all the time. And so I, I feel like that's a really good, like the fact that women can't just like be out in public in their own heads. Um, that's like forbidden to us informally, you know, it's an informal process. Like, it's not like there's some like collective being like, well, Hey, everyone we see, we gotta like, you know, but that's, that is the end result. Right. Um, is that women cannot just privately go about their business. Uh, I forget your original question, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing that really, go ahead. I was just saying is the original question was basically, um, is it okay to be unpleasant in real life? Are there virtues to that? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, I will tell somebody to, I'm like, fuck off. Like, leave me alone. Go away. Um, because I am, like, being covetous of my time and being covetous of my space. Um, and it's, and also, like, the fact that just saying no to things, like, saying, like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. Um, and not having to give an explanation, just saying, like, I don't want that and not having to provide an excuse. Um, so yeah. And I think women need to do that more. Yeah. Um, and honestly, my life has been better since I learned how to do that and not be so worried about being polite or being giving or, you know, um, yeah. Did you say that you walk around thinking about podcasts or being on podcasts or something? Just listening to podcasts. <laughs> like I just, I just like to walk around. Like it's just, it's nice to like go for a walk and just be like thinking about something or like listening to something just kind of off my own little space, you know? Uh, I guess I was just curious if you listen to podcasts. I, there was something in the book where you, you're mentioning your favorite or the character, I guess, is mentioning their favorite NPR hosts and stuff. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Oh, Yeah. I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, she's sort of saying, she's also talking about a thing that I sort of do, which is sometimes when I'm on a long car ride, I'll pretend to give interviews, um, which is just a weird little quirk, which is mostly to me just like letting myself sort of talk out loud about like my process or about whatever. Um, but I, yeah, I do listen to podcasts. I really like them. Are there like a couple of your favorite podcasts you could mention? Oh, yeah. Um, I really love My Favorite Murder, which is like a really excellent true crime podcast with like two of my favorite hosts ever. Um, I really like Sawbones, which is like a really good one about um, medical history, which is like really fun. Um, I really like Stuff You Miss in History Class. Um, God, what else? Oh, I really love Racist Sandwich, which is about like race and food and culture. That's a really good one. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of, I mean, there's so many good podcasts. I mean, I have to like, I can't listen to all of them because I don't have, I don't have so much time in my life. Um, but I do really, I really love them. And I love that, like, it sounds so cheesy. I like to like learn something. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. That's so cool. You know? And there've definitely been podcasts I listen to where like, I've gone and did other research on a topic and been like, oh, like that's something I can write about, you know? So I just feel like it's cool just to like be learning something while I'm like walking, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you would remember, but can you think of anything in any of these stories that you, that drew on a podcast to write them? In this collection, I don't, 
not, I can't explicitly remember, but like I'm, for example, I'm working on a story right now um, that's like not in, in the book. It's, it's new and it, it deals with us. I don't want to give too much away, but it deals with like a historical story, a historical movement that I learned about on a podcast um, in, on uh, stuff you miss in history class. So yeah, so there's really, it's really cool. Like it's a really cool, just, I don't know. I just like learning, you know, and like being able to like, be moving around like on the trolley or like walking because I walk to campus to teach, like just being able to listen to something that's like really neat. I really like it. Or when I'm like doing the dishes or whatever. So Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of podcasts as well. So I'm with you there. <laughs> Good. Um, I also wanted to ask you about this story mothers because the characters kind of invent their own religion. Um, could you tell yes. me about coming up with that idea? Well, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So in the, the story, there's a sort of movement in the middle of the story where the character is sort of fantasizing about the life that she had imagined with her lover who has since left her. Um, and so there's just many pages of her just like fantasizing about this place that they would have lived. And she talks about her own liturgical calendar. Um, so I have a good friend who I've known since I was a kid who is is Catholic. And for a while she was blogging about what she called eating liturgically, which meant like eating according to like the Catholic saint calendar. So like, you know, I know I'm not going to know any of the actual saints, but she'll be like, you know, today is like so-and-so's day. Um, there's some affiliation with like, I don't know, like tomatoes. And so like tonight we're going to eat based on this, like, you know, the meal will include tomatoes somehow or whatever. And I was like, and I'm not Catholic, but I was like, that's a, that's so cool. Like, what a cool idea. I sort of love, I mean, it feels very, like, almost like very pagan, you know? Um, and so I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So I had also, I'd always imagined, like, what if I had my own liturgical calendar, but it was like my own saints. So it would be like, you know, figures in history, or, you know, characters, books, like, and then they would have their own sort of affiliation and there'd be like ways to sort of celebrate them if you so chose. Um and so this is an idea that I've always had where it's like, I want to make my own saint book. Um, but so then I was like, I just kind of got to like make a fictional version of it, you know, where they sort of are like, oh, like there's this day, which is, you know, for like Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. And there's this day, which is for like uh, Frida Kahlo. And there's this day for Shirley Jackson. Like, you know, that's their saints. And like, there are various like ceremonies and foods and things um, that they, they, they sort of are used as like uh, part of those celebrations. So yes, yeah, so it was just like an example of like an idea that I had. And I was like, well, like I'm going to be able to do that at some point for myself, but I'll just like write about it in this story. Um, and I just love the idea of like having one's own religion based on like the figures in history that sort of speak to you. Um, and just also the fact that like, I feel like as an adult, you know, part of being an adult is like learning all this history that you never knew existed. And so like, I feel like one of the best parts about being older is like for example learning like queer history that like you never know so like for example like most people do not know that like Eleanor Roosevelt was bi and like had this lover for like decades um and that's like I've known like I read about Eleanor Roosevelt all the time and I never had heard this story at all and then I like discovered all these letters and like you know she has this it's like pretty infamous story and so it's like really cool I was like wow like I, I sort of did that that just becoming part of one's history like one's own personal like history and faith like acknowledging these things in history that you didn't know about um yeah so i just really like that idea yeah no that's something i think about a lot because you know i'm, I'm an atheist and none of the existing religions do a lot for me but 
I kind of like the idea of somebody inventing a religion that really speaks to me. And it doesn't have, it wouldn't for me have any supernatural aspects, but it would just be these sort of, yeah, like, like these, these kind of figures that you mentioned, like Hypatia, right. you know, and you would. Uh, right, exactly. So, yeah, I hope so. If anyone's listening to this and they want to start a religion like that, I mean, I'm too lazy to do it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I will join, I will, I will join if somebody else starts it. Right. Um, okay. So you mentioned your, um, uh, your story about law and order, a special victims unit. And, um, there's a part in the story where the characters kind of realize that their characters in a story and that people are watching their suffering for their own amusement and stuff. Um, I was just wondering if you could just sort of talk about, um, how you included that in the story and just kind of how, how you feel about those kinds of stories where the characters realize that their characters in a story. Yeah, I mean, that whole novella is about, I mean, it's sort of my attempt at to grapple with the idea of like, like, what does it mean that like we as a culture are so invested in these like narratives of violence against women? Um, and so it just made sense. So, so it was like, so that was like part of sort of what I was thinking about going into this project. And then at some point it just made sense that, um, since the there was like the sort of already this inherently metafictional conceit, which is like this is a piece of sort of quote unquote fan fiction about a show that exists that like deals sort of with our with our reality in the sense both that like it's about sexual violence, which obviously exists in real life, and also like the sort of the ripped from the headlines qualities of you know certain Law and Order franchise the Law and Order franchise, and so it, they might as well be aware of the fact that they are in a story that is satirizing another set of stories where they are sort of trapped in this cycle, but they're trapped in the cycle because we, the viewers, like the real life viewers are like really invested in this narrative. I mean, Law and Order SVU is the only, like, I don't really count the true crime one, which is like new and it's because it doesn't really involve the actual characters, but like it, true, you know, Law and Order SVU has been on for 19 seasons and is like the only one that's, that's outlasted all of its other sort of compatriots uh, in the Law and Order universe. And so Again, like, what does that mean? Like, why are we so invested in this particular story? So, yeah, so I, it made sense to me that, like, that character would become aware, those characters would become aware of the fact that they are sort of trapped in this, like, weird metafictional, you know, story, like, multiple levels deep. Um, it just, I don't know, it just, it just made sense with the rest of the conversation of that story. Right, and so your version of Law and Order features... Um, kind of doppelgangers and ghosts and various other kinds of supernatural creatures. Could you talk about why you wanted, wanted to incorporate those into the Law & Order universe? I mean, I sort of believe, I, I am firmly of the belief that the Law & Order, the Law & Order is a profoundly, like, capital W weird show, um, despite the fact that it's ostensibly memetic, like, ostensibly it's realist. Um, but I think there's a lot of, um, if you think about it in terms of, like, the fact that, like, a lot of these episodes are quote-unquote ripped from the headlines, so it's, like, this weird, like, mashed-up, like, kind of reality-adjacent episodes, even though they're fictionalized. Um, the fact that, like, actors repeat on that show, so, like, sometimes an actor will be, like, a DA in one, ep in one episode, and, like, seasons later will come back as, like, a suspect, um, or whatever. Like, there's a lot of ways in which it's already sort of pushing through the boundaries of reality anyway, and so I just pushed it a little further. Um, because that was just what made the most sense to me. Yeah, I don't know if you like I th something I think about a lot is if you buy the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and you believe that there's all these different universes where anything that can happen does happen. 
than mm -hmm. like uh, literature that you read. You are reading about real people and real things that are happening right. somewhere in the multiverse. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, I also was thinking about, I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, Tommy Westfall universe theory of television. Do you know? Do you know about this? Uh, not just offhand. What, what is that? So basically the end of the show, um, uh, uh, say it elsewhere, which was like that eighties medical drama. Um, the, in the final episode of that show, there's a sort of image that's like an implication, like there's sort of a zooming out process and there's a, it's a snow globe, like the hospital is a snow globe. And there's like a boy looking at the snow globe, this boy named Tommy Westfall, who I think this, in the story is like autistic. And because St. Elsewhere has done all these crossovers with other shows, there's actually this sort of, they call it the Tommy Westfall universe hypothesis, which is that like all the shows that have crossed over with that show or that crossover with shows that crossed over with those shows are all included in this fictional universe that is all being imagined in the mind of this boy. Um, and all the Law and Order franchises, the whole Law and Order franchise is included in that, in that, uh, list. Um, so the idea that, like, it's all sort of, like, consumed inside of, like, this boy's head, which I really love, and I feel like, in its own way, accounts for the weirdness, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you sort of believe that theory, and it, it also encompasses, like, if you look on, there's actually a website that's, like, dedicated to, like, tracking all these shows, and, um, it's, like, seven decades of TV that is, like, sort of ensnared in this metafictional net, um, and it's just really interesting to me. So, yeah, so I, I feel like Law is like a very, again, like capital W weird property. And so it just makes a lot of sense that, um, so it didn't seem that weird to like include like ghosts and doppelgangers and things. Cause like, why not? <laughs> My favorite lost fan theory was that the whole story is a dream that the dog is having. <laughs> I've never heard that. I fucking love that. That's amazing. <laughs> And I think that's so much better than the actual finale. They should have just done that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or something. Right. <laughs> okay. So this, and so this, this book I, I mentioned is a short story collection. And I think people generally think of short story collections as not um, reaching a really wide audience, but this book seems to be doing really well. It's a finalist for the national book award. Um, do you have any, just like, just from what you're hearing from people, do you have any sense of why this book seems to be striking such a chord with so many people? I mean, I think it's a few reasons. I think, I think people are really hungry. I mean, it's like unfortunate because it's like, I ra I'd sort of went rather, I wish that Trump was not president and my book would do less well. I think the book is partially sort of, a, I feel like that's a, there's a bit of a response to that. Like everyone's feeling really like fucked up. And I think women are feeling like extra gaslit, um, just sort of by culture. Like, again, I feel like we haven't really like reconciled. Like, I feel like we, it was so shocking that Trump won that I feel like we could have blew past the facts of why Hillary did not win. And I feel like the fact that we did not have this like large public sort of reckoning about like sexism and the way that we like hate women so badly, we wouldn't even let one run our country. Um, I feel like, and I feel like a lot of women have like sublimated the trauma. And also the fact that like that whole election cycle, which is like, Everything women have, women experience just like on a huge, massive public sort of stage. And it was really traumatic. I mean, I feel like, and so I feel like there's this sense that like people are responding to that. I think that's part of it. Um, I also, I also sort of feel like, uh, you know, like the, um, the fact that it engages with like sort of media that is really meaningful, like Law and Order SVU and like, Alvin Schwartz's scary stories, like, you know, that, that I think is, 
also important. And also I think the collection, you know, it's a very tight collection. Like it's eight stories and two of them are novellas. They all deal with like a very tight sort of set of like overlapping interlocking themes and ideas, which I think I know. I don't think all collections do that. Actually. I think a lot of collections feel a little more haphazard in terms of what's in there. And so I think it has more of like a novelistic feel, even though it is a short story collection, like it's not, I would never even call it a novel, but I feel like that sense of like all these stories are doing the same work um, in just slightly different ways, I think is like really powerful. Um, I mean, I think it's partially because like I'm sort of coming from both the genre and the lit worlds so which have their own sort of powerful reading sort of um, presences, presences and like the fact that like the genre world has such a robust sort of like short fiction scene and short fiction awards. And I mean, I feel like that's part of it. Um, and I feel like Grail did a really great job with the book. I mean, I just feel like there's been like a lot of factors that sort of featured and yeah, the book is doing great. I mean, it's like, I am no one is more shocked than me. Like I'm like, well, I did not think this book would sell at all. And like, here we go. Um, so yeah, so I feel like there's this sort of, um, there's been a lot of like, you know, like I worked really hard on this book. Gray Wolf worked really hard on this book. There's a lot of like, and there's a lot of luck, you know, and just like timing that's sort of involved that um, I think is also part of it. When you're talking about Hillary Clinton, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris could be the next president? Or do you think this sort of cultural factors you're talking about are going to undermine any female candidate for the in the near future? No, I really, honestly, if a woman is elected president in my lifetime, I will fall over dead from shock. Not because I don't think women are qualified to do it. I think they're probably more qualified. (laughs) Um, But because we have not, um, I don't think we've like reckoned with it. And I don't think like, like the fact that we never had like a very public conversation where where even progressive dudes were like, I like Hillary Clinton being president because I have like mom issues, you know, or like, I don't like to have a woman telling me what to do. Um, and so I'm going to find all these like weird faults with her that I want, that I wouldn't find with a male candidate. Um, we have not had that conversation. And I don't think until we do, I don't think it's possible for us to elect a woman. I really don't and call me a pessimist, but I no, I really don't think so. Um, it makes me really sad. It makes me really sad. Wow. Yeah. I mean, do you think like, what is the way forward? Do you think, I mean, do you have any advice for us? For what we can do as a culture? Hmm. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I'm not, a, I mean, I'm not a political, I mean, like, I'm not a political consultant. Like, I have no idea. I mean, I just think, I, I don't know. I, I think we just hate, I guess we have to have that conversation, but I don't think we're, you, I, I just don't think we're capable of having that conversation. I don't feel optimistic about it. So I don't really have any advice. I don't know. I, I wish... I wish it were different, but uh, it's not. All right. Well, maybe moving on to a cheery subject. I, I want to <laughs> ask you, um, how's your book tour been going? You were at uh, Word last night, I think, right? I was at Word last night. Yeah. No, the tour's been amazing. I've been doing events with like all these amazing other writers. Like last night I was with Alice Sola Kim, who I really love. And the night before that, with my friend with Tony Tool to Moody, who I also love. And I guess we did that with like Mallory Ortberg in San Francisco, who I also love. Like, I feel like it was like a really, it's been a really amazing lineup. I mean, I'm, I'm tired as one is when one travels constantly, but, um, it's been really good. Uh, it's been really amazing, like meeting, meeting all these people, you know, who like really love the book or have heard about the book or really excited or they're like, oh, I've read one of your other stories and I'm like really excited to read the whole thing. Um, 
that's been amazing. I mean, I love talking to people and getting to meet people and I love reading and I love like answering questions. So it's actually been like a really satisfying, uh, really satisfying process. So what did you, what did you talk about? Like with Alice Ola Kim last night? Oh, my favorite topic we touched on last night was actually about lip, like zit popping in the literary sphere. Cause I have a lot of like popping zits in this book. Um, and we had sort of went on, talked at length about that and like why we're so fascinated with that sort of culturally. Um, and then I read from one scene in the resident. Um, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty fun. That was a good, a good conversation. I mean, are there a lot of examples of zits in literature? Well, zits perhaps, but zit popping, not as many as you think though. Somebody actually, um, in the audience raised their hand and recommended a book by Junji Ito that I had never read before. Um, and now I can't remember the name of it. Oh my God. Uh, hold on. Wait, I actually have it written down here and I want to say it cause it, I looked it up and it's amazing. Um, Oh my God. Wait, hold on. I'm looking at it. Right. Oh, glyceride. Um, and we recommended that. So I'm really excited to read that, but no, but I feel like it's really, like, I guess, I'm really interested in sort of the um, the fact that, like, for example, like the Dr. Pimple Popper like YouTube channel has like bajillions and bajillions of followers, and I'm really interested in like that and like why people are so interested in like videos of zip popping. Um, and I feel like there is at some point to be written like the great cultural essay about why we are so attracted to videos about other people's like boils being lanced. But I don't, I don't know if it exists yet. But I would love to read it. <laughs> so someone please write it because I really want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's yeah. like a zit popping podcast you could listen to. Well, but I feel like it's so visual. I feel like, <laughs> well, the podcast wouldn't really be as satisfying because I feel like you want to like see it. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, we're running pretty short on time here, but you did mention that you, uh, you have other stories you're working on now. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you're working on now? What kind of upcoming projects you have? Yeah, I mean, I, so I sold a second book to Greywolf earlier this year. It's a memoir. And next summer, I it's due next September. So next summer, I'm going to a residency to finish that. Um, and uh, that's like a, a sort of experimentally structured memoir about um, abuse and same-sex relationships. Um, and then I'm also working on like, a, I mean, I'm working on, I'm always working on a bunch of things. Like I have a bunch of novels started. I have this like novel and stories I'm working on. Um I have a lot of stories that don't really have like places to go yet. Um, I I'm working on like an essay collection, but that takes me a long time because essays take me a million years to write. Um, so yeah, so that's that whole, um, so I'm just like working on like a million things at once right now. I mean, the memoir is the next like big thing I have to finish because it actually has a deadline. And then after that, I'm not sure what I'm going to be like submitting next to publishers, but yeah, we'll see. And you said that it's an experimentally structured memoir. Yes. So what is, can you say what's experimental about the structure? Um, I use, I'm sort of using genre tropes as a way of, uh, as lenses to examine specific ideas and memories. So for example, I have a chapter that's like a haunted house chapter and it's like using the metaphor of the haunted house as a way of examining like a specific memory um, or another one that's like a generation ship. And so like thinking about a generation ship is like a genre, or, like a subgenre, and like using that to examine another idea. So it's sort of this fragmented, it's hard to, it's hard to explain. Um, 
I don't quite understand it myself, but, <laughs> but it works. It's like a very useful, it's, it was the way I've been trying to write this book for a while. And it was sort of that, that structure actually helped me like break into, um, the version of the book that I wanted to write. So it's been pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, so we're, we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any, any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, no, but thank you so much for doing this. This is so lovely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we, so we've been speaking with Carmen Maria Machado, and this new book again. It's called "Her Body and Other Parties." So, Carmen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to Carmen Maria Machado for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Sarah Mishner, Giselle Adkins, Allison Boyce, and Michael Breland, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com slash galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.